April 2020, voters in Wisconsin passed an amendment to the state constitution that aims to strengthen protections for victims of domestic violence and other crimes. Marcy's Law is named for Marcy Marcy Nicholas, a California woman killed in 1983 by her former boyfriend after he was released from jail. Nicholas wasn't notified. Three years after the amendment was approved, efforts continue in Wisconsin to assess its impact and effectiveness. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. Today, we hear about Marcy's Law, how it has changed the criminal justice system and the journey for victims of crime from the time they call police to the time a case is resolved and even beyond. We invite you to join in the conversation today by calling 800-780-9742. You can email questions and comments as well to ideas at WPR.org. Michelle Visti is the former executive director of the Office of Crime Victim Services under the Wisconsin Department of Justice. Before joining the DOJ, Michelle spent five years as a deputy district attorney in the Dane County District Attorney's Office. She also spent three years prosecuting domestic violence cases in Dane County, where she has recently returned to serve as prosecutor. She also prosecuted cases in Washera County, Winnebago, and Outagamie. Throughout her career, she was involved in thousands of criminal cases, including homicides, home invasions, sexual assaults, crimes against children, and so many others. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Also with us today is Nella Kalpik. She is an advocate for domestic abuse victims and the state director of Marcy's Law for Wisconsin. She was awarded the Courage Award by Governor Scott Walker and serves on the Governor's Council on Domestic Abuse. She is an immigrant and survivor of domestic abuse herself. Nella, let's start with you. You are in a Caps Time op-ed quote saying that Marcy's Law would help victims and survivors feel seen and heard. Why is that? Yeah, hi. Thank you. Thank you for having us here today. Um, the the answer to that, I think, is pretty simple, actually. It is to create a more compassionate criminal justice system for victims, right? It is to elevate victims' rights, to make victims and the rights of the accused more equal throughout the criminal justice process, and it also to, it, it, it's intended to give uh, victims a more central role in criminal cases uh, and not just have them be on the periphery of that process. Michelle, I want to ask you, what kinds of gaps existed in the system that the amendment is really trying to address? What does, what does Marcy's Law do that wasn't done before? Well, there are some new rights that were created under Marcy's Law and some rights that were elevated from the statutory level to the constitutional level. Um, one of those rights, just as an example, is the right to privacy. Previously, that was only a statutory right for victims, and now it's a constitutional right. And we've seen major changes in the criminal justice system as a result of the right to privacy being elevated from the statutory level to the constitutional level. What are some of the other specific rights that Marcy's Law guarantees, Michelle? Sure. So um, one of the big changes with Marcy's Law is that victim rights now vest at the time of victimization. So earlier in the process than we previously saw with the statutory rights that victims had. So previously, most of the rights would come into play or vest or be afforded to victims after a criminal case was charged. 
Um, but now, under Marcy's law, victims' rights vest at the time of victimization. In other words, there are rights that are afforded to victims much earlier in the process than before. Um, other rights where we've seen major changes are the right to be heard at a proceeding in which a victim's right is implicated. Previously, victims had a right to be heard or to speak at certain hearings or proceedings, um, but they were specific to like a sentencing hearing, for example. Um, now victims have a right to be heard at any proceeding, which is almost every proceeding in which a victim's right is implicated. So it's given victims the opportunity to have input at additional rights throughout the criminal justice process or additional times throughout the criminal justice process that they didn't previously have. So it starts even at the police level then? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, one of the first rights that we see come um, into play for victims is the right to privacy, like I mentioned, a very important right, but also the right to be treated with fairness, dignity, respect, courtesy, and sensitivity. Um, so law enforcement, from the time they begin interacting with a victim, they need to ensure that the victim is treated in that way. Um, there are other rights at the law enforcement stage in the process, like the right to be informed of the status of the investigation and the outcome of the case, if the victim so chooses, um, as well as the right to be informed about the rights that they have throughout the process which is really key because a victim can't exercise rights that they don't know that they have. Sure. Nella, I'd like to know a little bit more about the history of Marcy's Law. We know, as I said earlier, it was named for Marceline Nichols. She was killed by a former boyfriend back in 1983. What led to the push for reform? Was it a family initiative that that arose out of this? Do you know? Yeah, so... <clears throat> So, of course, um, I, I, I haven't heard how much you shared about this, but um, Marcely was a young student who was murdered by her boyfriend, who was then released from jail on bail without the family knowing. So they were at the store at the checkout line one day, and they were just confronted by him. And, of course, you can imagine how traumatic this was for them. And so this uh, traumatic incident uh, then was the driving force behind the movement. So um, Marcy's brother, he started this movement and he sought uh, to pass victims' rights constitutional amendment in every state throughout the country and at the national level. And it has passed in a number of states so far, right? Yes, 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 it has. So, so far... Uh, Marcy's law has passed in California, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Nevada, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Ohio, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Michelle, I, I want to ask you about the way in which Marcy's law was introduced to the people of Wisconsin. It went through a ballot initiative. Is that how it worked in other states, too? Well, it depends on each state's individual process for um, amending their constitution. In Wisconsin, the, the initiative or Marcy's Law needed to pass in the same form twice through the state legislature in separate um, legislative sessions. So it passed our legislature twice in separate legislative sessions in the exact same form, and then it went on to the ballot for Wisconsin voters to approve it. 
um, and to ratify it. And that's how it was passed as a constitutional amendment in Wisconsin. And why a constitutional amendment, not just a, you know, some ordinance on the books? Sure. So um, we have statutory rights and we have constitutional rights that apply to victims. At the statutory level, um, rights are considered lower than constitutional rights. So the idea behind Marcy's Law is to elevate victim rights from a statutory level or a lower law to a higher level, to be more on equal footing with the rights of the accused. Um, so that really is the purpose, is to, to make these rights elevated at a higher level so that victims are on a more uh, level playing field with defendants throughout the criminal justice process. Now, Wisconsin's constitutional was uh, was already amended once to incorporate rights for crime victims. This was way back in 1993, and there were some statutory protections that existed as well. How monumental is Marcy's law in in adding to what was already there? Yeah, before before I answer that, I would just to highlight something that I also think is very important, um, uh, which is that the language that we have here in Wisconsin, uh, we were very intentional about what that looks like. So even though all these other states obviously have their own amendments, the language itself in all those amendments is specific to those states as is specific to Wisconsin. So our amendment is our um, it, 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 is, it is meant to really uh, serve what victims in the state of Wisconsin need. And so can you re- repeat now again the question? Yes, I guess I'm just wondering how much of a change this was from the prior uh, amendment. How, how, how monumental were the new rights that have been given through this initiative? Well, I think any time we pass a new um, uh, victim rights or we award victims with stronger uh, stronger rights, that in itself is monumental, right? And I, as someone who hasn't spent all her life in Wisconsin, I, I would like to highlight the fact that Wisconsin has traditionally been a leader, really. And I know Michelle can talk about this uh, even better than I can, but Wisconsin has been the leader in, 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 in victims' rights. And so what Marcy's Law did is really um, took the work that has been done in Wisconsin over, over many years and then elevated what we already had here to, like Michelle mentioned, to a constitutional level, which allows uh, victims not only um, an easier access to rights, but also um, it allows them to enforce them in in, in, in a more meaningful way. Michelle, would you like to expand on on what Nella just said? She mentioned that that uh, Wisconsin has been uh, a leader for a long time in victims' rights. Do, do you see that as as the case? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, Wisconsin was the first state to enact a bill of rights for victims and witnesses of crime, and that happened way back in 1980. So it's pretty exciting that we were the first state to do that. Um, and then, as you mentioned before, we did have a previous victims' rights constitutional amendment that was passed in 1993. So prior to Marcy's law, we were lucky here in Wisconsin that we did have robust victims' rights laws, both at the constitutional level and in statute. But I think what we see with the passage of Marcy's law, like 
Nella said is um, we made Marcy's Law our own. Um, we recognize that there were some gaps in Wisconsin, specifically in relation to the right to privacy, and I think also in relation to restitution and restitution collection. So those are the areas where we really saw this model Marcy's Law language be changed and be made to be more specific to Wisconsin and what we saw as potentially being gaps for victims. You know, you just mentioned um, restitution, and uh, that's something that caught my eye. One of the rights expanded under the law is full restitution uh, and to provide it with assistance collecting restitution. We're hearing from some counties, though, that they're having a really difficult time collecting restitution in any case. So is, has that been a stumbling block and, and, and a challenge for, for communities? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's always been an issue for crime victims, and um, it's really unfortunate. I think it's a struggle for victims because many times um, the accused or the defendants, the, the convicted individuals, um, simply don't have the money to pay the restitution, or they get a long prison sentence, and the restitution comes in very small increments from their earnings in prison. Um, so collection of restitution, I think, has been a gap in the past for victims. One of the things that we've seen counties do, and we hope that all counties in Wisconsin will do, is work with the Department of Revenue in Wisconsin, certify debt to the Department of Revenue. And then the Department of Revenue has different tools that they can use for collecting restitution, um, such as wage garnishment, um, tax intercepts. And those are what we're hoping that you know all counties will pursue to assist victims with collection and restitution. But that was a big change under Marcy's law, that additional provision of assistance with restitution collection. You're listening to Michelle Visti and Nella Kalpik, our guests today on Route 51, as we continue our discussion on the impact of Marcy's Law in Wisconsin. Ahead, we'll hear about the mapping exercises held in Wausau and other communities and what they're telling us about the amendment's successes and gaps. We'll answer your questions, too, when you call us at 800-780-9742. You can also send an email to ideas at WPR.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Shereen Seward. We continue now our discussion on Marcy's Law, the state constitutional amendment approved by voters in April 2020. Our guests today are Michelle Visti and Nella Kalpik. Your comments and questions are welcome, too. You can email us at ideas at WPR.org or give us a call, 800-780-9742. Michelle, I'm curious about the mapping exercises going on in Wisconsin communities this year. There was one in Wausau in January, and I was so disappointed that I couldn't go. Um, what's, what's happening there? Do you know, like, what, what are they trying to do? 
Um, well, what we're doing um, with the mapping exercises is going into a community and trying to bring together all the key criminal justice partners and also nonprofit agencies that provide services to victims of crime and bring everyone together and have a discussion about victims' rights to identify any gaps in their community in serving victims of crime or ensuring that their rights are afforded to them and work together in coming up with solutions to fill those gaps in that particular community. Um, we know it looks a little bit different and the way cases move through the criminal justice system looks a little bit different in each community. So it's really individualized to the specific community that we work with. I'd like to hear a little bit about the journey for a crime victim who's navigating this system from the time police are called to the post adjudication stage. Can you take me through it? Um, tell me, tell me what happens, Michelle. Sure. So this is, I laugh because this is what we spend a day or a day and a half doing um, at the Marcy's law mapping exercises. So I'll do my best to try to summarize yes. it. Um, in way less than a day and a half. Um, so uh, when the criminal justice process begins, when police get called to an incident, um, as I mentioned before, one of the most critical rights for victims that is implicated right away is the right to notice of all of the rights that they have. Because if they don't know what their rights are, how are they able to exercise them? How are they able to access them? How are they able to enforce violations of them? So one of the statutory requirements is that on that first interaction with victims, law enforcement provide them with a list of the rights they have or give them information about the rights that they have and services that are available to them. Um, we emphasize with law enforcement that one of their key responsibilities is to help victims understand um, what their rights are, what their options are, and provide information about the resources that are available in their community. So that is something that we cover in the mapping exercise as well. Um, at this point, the journey is different for every victim. Depending on the victim's interest level in participating in the criminal justice system, as well as the type of crime committed. So sometimes you'll have a victim call law enforcement and they'll respond and the victim will um, indicate that they don't want to make a report, an official report to law enforcement or don't want to participate in the criminal justice process. Um, most of the time, uh, law enforcement is able to respect that, um, but there are times when, because there are public safety concerns, the case needs to move forward regardless of the victim's wishes as far as participation in the criminal justice system or not. Mm -hmm. um, so generally speaking, law enforcement has that first contact with them, gives them information, ensures their safety, provides them with resources, and then the case eventually moves to the district attorney's office once law enforcement has completed their investigation. Uh, once it moves to the DA's office, this is where victim witness professionals become involved. They ensure that victims are made aware of their rights, their options to participate in the court process, uh, that they be notified of all proceedings, that they be given the option to attend proceedings, uh, have a right to be heard, and have a right to timely disposition of their cases. Uh, this is a really big deal for victims. And right now, because of COVID, we see a really big backlog in criminal cases in the criminal justice system and cases that are lingering for, frankly, years. 
Um, and this is really hard for victims because many victims put their lives on hold yeah. while the case is pending and are really just waiting for it to end in order to be able to move forward. Sure. Um, yeah, so that's been huge. And then, like I said, it, it really depends on the type of case and the victim's level of interest as to what it looks like as the case moves through the criminal justice system. Many times we have victims that want to participate fully in the process and will come to court, and others, other times, not so much. So, yeah, it's a very personal decision, I would imagine, I mean, depending on, on their feelings about the whole thing and, and what they're going through. Nella, I want to ask you about your life. You've been pretty open about your own personal journey from survivor to advocate. I'd, I'd like to invite you to share a little bit about that with us now. Yeah. Um, while I was listening, while I was listening to um, Michelle sharing about, you know, specific rights that are awarding are awarded to victims, one right that I personally, again, like Michelle said, um, this experience feels different and looks different for every victim, and so to me personally, the right to be heard right the right to choose to be heard and have the opportunity to be heard throughout the process is such an important right and i i talk to victims throughout the state um and that is one right that comes up every time during our conversations how meaningful that is to victims and i say this because um in my personal experience having lived in countries where you don't get that opportunity, right? Like I'm, um, it, it almost doesn't matter where I'm from because every corner of the world, there are victims in every corner of the world and they struggle uh, everywhere. But one thing that I love about this country is that we really work so hard, so hard to um, make victims understand that there are people in their, their corner who work so hard every every day to be there for them and help them throughout the process. So I, I'm originally from Serbia, but I lived in the Middle East for a very long time where I was um, trapped in abusive marriage. And I had to really um, come up with a plan how to escape that because there are no resources um, and I'm speaking about the situation that happened almost a decade ago so maybe some things have changed between then and now but generally speaking there are no resources for victims in, in, in those countries in a way that we have them here and so I had to really figure out a way how I can escape um, and and come to this country so that I can then navigate my own journey, uh, moving away from that experience and, and becoming free again. Michelle, you worked as a prosecutor for a long time before going to the DOJ. You're, you're back in the, uh, in the prosecutor role again. When you look back on the victims, the survivors you worked with, what can you tell us about the very real impact of Marcy's Law? So one of the things I've noticed um, since I'm back in the courtroom uh, with frequency almost every day is um, what Nella said about the right to be heard. I'm seeing a lot of victims exercise their right to be heard, um, primarily by phone uh, or through Zoom, which is really great that we have these additional 
technologies in place where victims can participate in the criminal justice process and don't necessarily have to come to court and be in person. That can be very intimidating for victims to show up and have to be present with their um, with the person they've accused of a crime or their offender in court with them. So that's one of the biggest changes I've seen. The other is in relation to the right to privacy. Um, previously, victims' names, dates of birth, their addresses would all be listed in the criminal complaints that were um, drafted at the time charges were issued. And now we see um, much we see all of this information either kept out of criminal complaints, scaled back, or we see public court documents be sealed to protect victims' privacy from being, you know, their names being made public, their addresses being made public, their dates of birth, those sorts of things. So those are probably the two biggest changes that I've seen over time as a result of the passage of Marcy's Law. I want to bring up Christina Traub. She's a violent crime survivor who told her story back in 2017 in a Wisconsin State Journal column. She also advocated for Marcy's Law in a series of ads in which she described the attack that she suffered. And she said, this is, this is what resonated with me. She said that despite Wisconsin's strong laws after her boyfriend strangled her, she felt re-victimized by a legal process that seemed to give her attacker a larger voice than she had. Why do you think that was the case? And Michelle, is that something you heard from the victims you advocated for as a prosecutor? I think that is something that we've heard um, throughout time is that victims did not feel like they were part of the process as much as the defendant. Um, and this goes back to what Nella talked about in the very beginning as far as the passage of Marcy's Law and the purpose behind Marcy's Law to bring victims more into the conversation and give them a more central role as a case moves uh, through the criminal justice system. And I think that's one of the positive changes about Marcy's Law. Another thing that we've seen in Wisconsin and, and nationally is more victims of crime being represented by attorneys to help enforce their victims' rights. And I think that has caused victims to feel like they're on a little more of a level playing field because prosecutors don't represent the victim. They represent the state of Wisconsin. And so oftentimes a victim feels like, you know, the defendant has a lawyer and they have all these people that are advocating for them. And who do I have to speak for me? Um, and so that's certainly one of the positive things that we've seen um, as far as you know, when victims have that option or have the ability to be represented by counsel. One of the victims' rights that's been difficult for overwhelmed court systems, and you alluded to this earlier, uh, Michelle, the right to timely disposition without unreasonable delays. Given this shortage of public defenders and prosecutors, a, a backlog due to COVID, how difficult is that proving? And, and what do you see as a solution to that problem moving forward? It's really difficult. Um, you know, I see cases um, that have been assigned to me that have been pending for two years and are finally going to trial. Um, and like you said, there's also a shortage of defense attorneys to represent defendants, which has caused delays in the criminal justice system as well. And in certain parts of the state, that's worse than others. Um, what are some possible solutions? I think, honestly, it's just time and resources. Um, we're starting to see, at least in Maine County, cases start to catch up and um, 
cases that are old starting to, to progress to trial and proceed to trial and seeing this backlog um, kind of loosen up and, and catch up. We're catching up to that backlog. Um, so I think time will um, help. And then I think additional resources. I know that there are um, proposals in the budget process and the state budget um, at this time to provide more resources for public defenders, um, for prosecutors. And I think, you know, once we have those additional resources, we can continue to um, have cases move more quickly through the criminal justice system. But right now there's just a shortage of resources. Nella, we talked a little bit about the pandemic and the fact that this was introduced during the pandemic. You know, as an advocate for Marcy's Law, did, do you felt that, that like that led to more uncertainty about how the law would actually be used when you're going through this process and trying to educate the public on what this would do? Yeah, well, I think whenever there is a new law passed, there is uncertainty around it, right? It takes time um, for 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 certain clarifications to be put in place, and it's always. So I, I don't think that necessarily was very, um, very, very unique with Marcy's law. But but one thing that I think is great is the awareness and Michelle uh, Michelle spoke a little bit about that already awareness that comes with passage of new law so uh, all the conversations that were started across the state that talked about victims rights meaningful access to those rights right we can't talk about victims rights if we if we don't consider how are we accessing them as an and and myself as an immigrant and someone whose English is not my first language, right? Someone who uh, doesn't necessarily even understand uh, fully the culture of, of the country, or uh, I haven't 10 years ago, right? Um, there are all these barriers for, for survivors and victims uh, like myself that we really need to understand, and we can't, and others, not just us, obviously. And so we cannot do that without having these conversations. And, and the great thing that happened in the state of Wisconsin, thanks to all the I mean, I'm truly gratified every every day to to know all the amazing people working on this, and this is hard work. So, um, all these people having these conversations and educating victims and raising awareness uh, on these rights, I think that has been um, that has been a wonderful thing that I have witnessed over the past few years. Michelle, I'm curious about the federal courtroom system and prison system in Wisconsin. Uh, of course, there's you know there's state cases, and then there there are federal cases, and they're prosecuted differently, and they're tried differently, and there are federal prisons. So, uh, do, do the federal processes in Wisconsin also follow Marcy's law, or are they kind of exempt from all of that? That's a good question. Now. Um my understanding is any crime victim in Wisconsin, because it's a constitutional right in Wisconsin, would be afforded Marcy's Law rights, whether they, uh, whether the prosecution takes place in federal court or in state court. Um, so it is my understanding that they do follow uh, and ensure that victims are afforded all of those rights that are in our Constitution. Statutory rights would be different because um, different laws apply. Uh, during federal prosecutions than state prosecutions. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. What happens? But I think, oh, may, may I add? Just Please a, do. A quick, 
Yeah, just a quick thought. Um, uh, whatever whatever laws are are in place, none of them obviously trump any constitutional right that speaking of this defendant specifically the debt that are afforded to them so um that's that's one thing okay uh, uh, one of one of the things that that Marcy's law did was kind of expand and define what a victim is and and that included things about when a victim is a minor and um i I'd like to ask you to expand on that Michelle what happens in cases where the victim is a minor how does the amendment address that that was the the one big change to the definition of victim. Otherwise, the definition remained pretty much the same. Um, but in cases where the court makes a finding that a person is not acting in the best interest of, like, a minor child um, or somebody who's incompetent or physically or emotionally unable to exercise their rights, um, when a court makes that finding, they can appoint somebody else to exercise victim rights on behalf of the victim. So, for example, I know this sounds a little complicated, but it's actually quite simple in practice. For example, if you have a parent who's not acting in the best interest of a child victim, the court could appoint someone someone else, including a guardian ad litem, to exercise victim rights on behalf of the victim. And that's been huge because um, in the state criminal justice system, we frequently see situations where um, a parent isn't acting in the best interest of a child, and now we have an opportunity to have another individual get involved in the case and help minor victims exercise their rights on their behalf. Nella, can you can you speak to that the the impact of that and what what a major change that that was? Yeah, this is something that I hear um, from different counties, like really as a meaningful thing that they started doing. And I heard um, stories of, of, of children or juvenile victims who were able to exercise that, that right and how, um, how that impacted them. And specifically, I can think of cases of, uh, you know, interest in the family. And as you can imagine, how horribly traumatic that can be for that victim and not having their parents because of course that's family trauma and uh, you know um, but not having the parent in their corner in a way that's meaningful to them mm -hmm. uh, is, is, is huge and then having actually someone who can advocate for them through the process uh, has been life-changing for these victims and we, we we do know um we do know cases specific cases where that was the that was the situation and we're very grateful for that you're hearing nella kalpik and michelle visti our guests today on route 51 as we look at marcy's law for wisconsin and how the criminal justice system has changed in its wake ahead we'll look back at some critics concerns at the time the amendment was passed and see whether those concerns were indeed founded we'd like to hear from you too. join us by calling 800-780-9742 you can also send us an email at ideas at wpr.org i'm shereen seward this is route 51 on wisconsin public radio
You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward with our guests, Nella Kalpik and Michelle Visti. A conversation on Marcy's Law, which was passed by voters in Wisconsin in 2020. It's had a marked impact on the court and criminal justice system. What would you like to know? You can email us at ideas at WPR.org or join us by phone at 800 780 9742. I think it's fair to say that not everyone was on board when this amendment was on the ballot. There still are critics out there. Some lawyers and civil rights experts say the push to give crime victims constitutional rights equal to those of criminal defendants could set up a clash over core aspects of the U.S. legal system, like the accused person's Sixth Amendment right due to, to due process and the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Um, Michelle, how how is that being managed? Well, as Nella said before, I think when the law first passed, there was um, a lot of fear and uncertainty, and obviously there was opposition at the time that it was passing through the state legislature. Um, but now that we're almost three years uh, after the passage of Marcy's Law, it seems to me that people are recognizing that maybe it was a situation of much ado about nothing. Um, there are some occasions where a victim's right conflicts with the right of or a right of the accused. But what I'm seeing in court is these are few and far between. And in those situations, judges do what they always do, what they're um, elected to do, which is weigh the necessary factors involved and make a judgment call about um, whether one individual's right supersedes the others under all of the circumstances of the case. So we do see some conflicts in reality, but um, they actually there are actually very few and far between um, incidents where a right of a victim would clash with the right of a defendant. I'm going to ask about some of those specific instances. Marcy's Law gives Wisconsin victims the right to refuse an interview, deposition, or other discovery request uh, made by the accused or any person acting on behalf of the accused. Defense attorneys say this is problematic. Now, what do you say to that? Why is that language important, and why was it included in Marcy's Law? Well, I think it's important to highlight that um, the amendment was is not intended to take a single right um, away from the accused person. And if you really uh, read the language closely, that truly, um, truly is the case. Now, we live in a world of grays, right? And uh, we, of course, there are going to be situations where you know, we have a situation of co-equal rights. And like Michelle said, then uh, that is on the judges uh, to do what they're intended to do, which is to consider all the facts uh, for that particular case and weigh them out and ensure that both victim and the defendant are awarded um, due process that they both deserve. And Michelle, you you spoke about this a little bit about the uh, about the public records request, the open records uh, stuff. Um, how is how are Marcy's law rights being balanced with respect to the public records request? Who's involved in that? Is that a uh, something that the court clerks have to do? Something that the police departments have to do? What happens? Well, anybody who's a records custodian for a public agency would need to. Um, exercise their discretion. They use the balancing test like they would in any other similar situation um, because there is no statutory exception 
for denying a public records request for victim information. So they weigh the public's interest in access to that information versus the victim's right to privacy and then make a judgment call. Um, the Attorney General's Office, where the Department of Justice, where I previously worked, did put out um, information guidance to public records custodians about how to exercise or how to implement that balancing test when it comes to the rights of a victim, the right to privacy versus the right to public access to information. So it's the balancing test that they always um, did in those situations. And uh, but now we see a heightened right to privacy where in some situations, maybe previously the information would have been released, but we see it either redacted or we see a denial on occasions um, of the release of that victim information because of a victim's right to privacy. Yeah, and if I can add to that, thank you, Michelle, for saying that. I mean, we live in a world ruled by technology, right? And, and, and once you release the information or once the information gets out there, you just don't have the control over it anymore. And that has a real-world impact on, on people's lives. And I can tell you, I mean, there are obviously numerous examples that we can talk about how that potentially or, or actually impacts the victims if the, that, that kind of sensitive uh, information is released to the world in a manner that is not sensitive to them. But it can end up sometimes, I mean, it can end up in death. I, I, I know a situation where uh, a child who was, um, who was sexually molested uh, they were a victim, and uh, the, 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 the information got out there, and then they started being bullied in school, and, uh, and that didn't end well. And so it is just really important to, to bear in mind that these are real, real lives, real people, and the information can be a matter of um, definitely life-altering situation, and that's why we need to be careful how we handle it. And Nella, can this interfere with civil proceedings or the ability of a defendant to sue a wrongful accuser? Does it have any impact at all in that area? I think Michelle can speak better than I can to this because she's boots on the ground there every day. But I will start by saying that there is a protest in, 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 uh, which is followed uh, between um, district attorney's offices and public defender's offices, uh, communication that ensures uh, that not to be the case. Michelle, uh, what do you say to that? Does it have any impact on, on the ability of a defendant to sue a wrongful accuser or civil proceedings in any way? No, it doesn't. And we haven't seen that um, at all as far as an impact or um, I heard absolutely nothing about that um, interfering with somebody's ability to sue somebody who's wrongfully accused them. And if I could just add um, back to the, the right you talked about to refuse an interview deposition or other discovery request. Previously in Wisconsin under statute, the victim always had a right to, to refuse an interview or deposition. Um, made by the accused. So that really wasn't a new right. I know there was a lot of attention around that right when the when Marcy's Law was um, pending before the state legislature, um, but that was a right that already existed for victims in statute. 
Nella, on the uh, Marcy's Law website for Wisconsin, uh, there there's a facts section in which they they put these common common concerns that people had and and how they've been responded to. And uh, I mean, after three years, what do you think about those concerns now? Have any of them really proved to be uh, problematic um, in any way? Yeah, well, <clears throat> uh, thank you for asking. I think Michelle already said um, that, you know, it's natural. Of course, people are going to, and it's good that people have questions, right, when when a legislation like this passed, and, and we are grateful for those questions. Um, but the, 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 it, after, like Michelle said, after three years of the amendment being implemented, uh, to the best of our awareness, we have not seen we have not seen a case where 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 that where 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 some of those or many of those concerns actually uh, came to fruition. And personally, I'm, I'm I'm glad that's the case. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to make sure I got both your perspectives on on that. When this was introduced, uh, what was the general reaction from judges and prosecutors? I, Michelle, what did you hear? Um, honestly, panic. <laughs> really? Um, it went into effect very quickly. So it was ratified by the voters in April of 2020, and then it went into effect three and a half weeks later. And when Wisconsin had previously passed a constitutional amendment in 1993 that I, that I referenced before, um, it actually took five years before that constitutional amendment went into effect, it required enabling legislation. So our state had five years to figure it out. Um, with Marcy's Law, we had three and a half weeks to figure it out. So there was, honestly, panic um, among those in the criminal justice system. What is this going to look like? How are we going to implement this? What changes do we need to make? Um, and that's right when COVID had hit. And so um, I think those were the initial responses. Um, you know, the Department of Justice, the Office of State Courts, um, Public Defender's Office, everyone responded quickly and tried to provide the best guidance they could in looking at the plain language of the amendment. But um, this is something that's going to take time to implement. Um, we've had no statutory changes to assist with this implementation yet. And there really haven't been any, to my knowledge, any court cases that have made interpretations of Marcy's Law, giving us guidance about how to interpret it and how to implement it. So that will happen over time. Um, and I think now that people are used to it, now that people, you know, like I said, three years, um, we know that it hasn't caused, you know, monumental changes to the criminal justice system. I think people have started to relax and um, look at it as, okay, we've made some changes. This is the new norm. Um, but they recognize that maybe that initial panic that we had in April 2020 was a bit of an overreaction. Nella, what? Yeah, I. Oh, I was just going to add. I mean, I part of my job is going, you know, visiting all the counties, and again, so grateful that people are taking the time to have those conversations on top of everything else that they're doing. Um, but uh, I can see. Uh, a, a real 
change from those initial conversations that were uh, uh, full of these anticipatory um, questions initially to now having, um, you know, district attorney, like just the other day I was in Adams County and district attorney said, you know, we, we, we figured it out and, and, and victims are better for it. And I would say that is a very good, uh, that would be a very good sentiment that I hear in other counties as well as to, that speaks really well to um, how people are overall feeling um, in the state regarding the amendment to this point. Mm. I, we have about two minutes left in our time together, and I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you, Michelle, what gaps still exist? What can the justice system do better? Um, well, back to my resource point, um, when when Marcy's Law was passed, uh, there was no additional funding that came with it. And so district attorney's offices are trying to provide the same level of service that they were before to victims, but they're struggling a bit to do that under the same amount of resources that they previously had. So victims have new rights, um, but we really need more resources being put into the system to ensure that they're provided a, a high level of service and afforded those rights. And then second, I think victims need to become aware of their rights and how to enforce them. So I think as a state, we can continue to have these public conversations and that will assist in making victims aware of their rights um, and gain knowledge about how to exercise them. And you know, other outreach opportunities um, and public awareness campaigns, I think, would be would be very helpful as well. I think a gap is just knowledge, knowing those rights and how to exercise them. Nella, our last minute here, what are mm-hmm. your thoughts? What would you like to see happen? Yeah, that is exactly what I would say as well, and I'm grateful that we've done a number of these awareness-raising um, efforts throughout the state, including uh, uh, working with counties uh, and looking into barriers the victims are experiencing, uh, cultural specific communities, for example, are experiencing in accessing those rights or, you know, doing awareness raising campaigns with district attorney offices, um, educating victims on the rights that are accessible to them through our Silhouette event. You can go ahead and read more about those. I think they are awesome. And just all other stakeholders in the, in the state, victim service organizations, Department of Justice, Office of Crime and Services, that they're doing their own uh, awareness raising um, uh, efforts, whether it's through trainings or other or similar efforts. But uh, again, grateful for the conversations that we're uh, and all the efforts that we're seeing across the state. Well, I'm grateful that you both joined us today. This is Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward, extending a sincere thanks to our guests, Nella Kalpik and Michelle Visti. Our producers are Joy Ratch-Kramer and Kate Spranger. Our executive producer is Rick Ryer. Joy is our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program as well as our previous programs at wpr.org slash route 51. If you have an idea for a future program, email us at ideas at wpr.org. We would love to hear from you. Next week, we'll be back with another discussion, and we hope you'll join us. Until then, we're heading out of town. 